chapter 18 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisle right now and they have Bibles. And if you just uh, wave to them, get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. And that way you can not only listen to the teaching this morning, but you can follow along with your own eyes looking at your own Bible. So take advantage of that. Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And, of course, this is um, amazing territory that we're in now because it is the uh, morning of his of the day of his crucifixion. And so we'll pick things up. uh, John, chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. And yes, if you're a little concerned for me, I do know that we read this last week. Saying, oh, I'm so embarrassed for him. He's going to repeat the sermon. I reserve the right to do that in the future, but I won't be doing that uh, this morning. So John 18, verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as we do so often for the privilege of being able to turn to your word this morning. As we see everything about us shaken, everything that can be shaken is being shaken in the world that we live in. And we're thankful that we're able to turn to your word and to a God that never changes. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn to your word this morning, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give it great life, great application to each one of our lives here this morning. We long to understand Why this passage is in the Bible, we long to understand the great lesson behind it. We long for that lesson to have a living, eternal place in each one of our lives. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that will cause that to be what happens in each of our lives this morning. And we ask it of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Did we get that on mute? Did we? Okay. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad, but um, I'm so easily distracted that if I heard it again, I'd probably start dancing or something. All right. The word of the Lord. On the morning of Jesus's crucifixion, he endured two trials. One at the hands of a religious trial at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The other secular trial at the hand of the Roman governor Pontus Pilate. And both of the trials were certainly not a demonstration of 
you know, integrity or uh, anything like that. They were really travesties in terms of both of the trials. But God was in charge of the situation of the day. And as bad as those trials were and as poorly as they were conducted, one thing that came out of them, out of both of those trials, and we'll continue to be looking at Pilate in the next coming week or two, was revelation that Jesus gave concerning himself that we wouldn't otherwise have apart from the trials, at least not uh, to the degree that we have it. And one of the things one of the things that we want to look at this morning is one of those great revelations that came out of this trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate In verses 33 through 38. Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate. Pilate asked him if he was the king of the Jews. Jesus then asked in verse 34, are you speaking this uh, for yourself on this, or did others tell you this about me? And so Jesus asked whether Pilate was asking on behalf of the Jews or whether this was a, an issue that was of personal concern to him. In other words, do you really want to personally know whether I am the king of the Jews uh, or, uh, or, or is this uh, something that you're just asking as a technical part of this trial? Pilate is... In this section of the trial, he's clearly irritated at having been pulled into what he has been pulled into. He knows he's being manipulated by the Jewish religious leaders. He wants nothing to do with what he finds himself in the middle of here in trying Jesus. None of it makes any sense to him. And, uh, and since he doesn't want to be in the middle of it, he's a little irritated. And he speaks to Jesus in verse 35 and declares, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you up to me. What have you done? In essence, saying to him, I am a Roman. I'm not a Jew. I'm no expert on the Jewish religion. I don't understand the ins and outs of it, the nuances of it. All I know is that you have upset them in a very, very big way. The entire nation has turned on you. They've delivered you to me, but without charges. And perhaps you could enlighten me as to what it is that you're guilty of. Jesus responded to his question very directly in verse 36 and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus declared himself plainly to be a king. He declared himself to be the king over a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that is in this world but it is not of this world. In other words, Pilate, you ask me what I am guilty of. That's what I am guilty of. That's what you are in the middle of. And when I'm crucified, know that it was for no other reason than for being a king over a great and heavenly kingdom. The religious leaders knew that that was why they were pushing for Jesus's crucifixion. And before Jesus was crucified, he wanted to make sure that Pilate was aware of it as well. At this point, in verse 37, Pilate softens and he asks Jesus, are you a king then? And notice, because it's the focus of our message this morning, Jesus's revelation to him in verse 37, the second half of it. He said, you say rightly that I am a king. 
For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So again, he confirms that he is a king, but that the kingdom that he is a part of is different from, and the head of is different from any kingdom that Pilate is aware of. So, it, because very, very profoundly, Jesus declared that the kingdom that he ruled over was a spiritual kingdom, is a spiritual kingdom that expands and enlarges itself in this world, never on the basis of force, never on the basis of military action, the way that Rome did, the way that many empires have done since, but that he was and is the king of a kingdom which is advances and expands its reach and its influence in the world on the basis of truth. Pilate's response to that priceless revelation of Jesus in verse 38, he asked, what is truth? And then turned on his heels and walked out of the room that Jesus was then sitting in to go out and face the Jews once again in order to declare Jesus' innocence. Lots of speculation about how is it that Pilate asked this question, what is truth? Did he say it with a sigh? Did he say it defiantly? Did he say it mockingly? Did he say it sarcastically? Did he say it cynically? Did he say it with irritation? Did he say it with impatience? Did he say it with skepticism? Did he say it wistfully? Did he say it longingly? Did he say it indifferently? Nobody knows for sure. As I look at this scene and the whole trial of, of Jesus before Pilate, to me, Pilate just sounds tired. And he sounds very jaded to me. Like a man who has been worn out by the subject of truth. He's given up that there is such a thing as truth. And in this regard, Pilate's day is just like the day that we live in today. So many philosophies, so many philosophers, so many people on the search for truth, so many people trying to tell us about their search for truth, and so many talkers and talkers and talkers and arguers and debaters and lawyers, whether religious or secular, claiming to know truth and to speak the truth. And when push comes to shove, as Pilate's experience was, it never ended up being about truth in anyone's life. It always came back down to money and power and greed and lust. Just like with these Jewish religious leaders that he's dealing with, who claim to have a love for truth. That was the passion and the focus of their life was truth. 
And yet he knew them well enough that while they talked that good game about truth, when it really came down to it again, where push came to shove in the nitty gritty of life, they didn't respond any differently than anyone else in life. And so now the subject of truth arises on this morning, and he's not interested in wasting one more hour of his life talking about ultimate truth in the human condition. And I think that one of the reasons that Pilate ended up missing the truth on that morning is simply because he had given up on ever finding it. And perhaps that's you this morning. You've lived life for a while. You've seen some things. You've read broadly in life. College educated, university educated. Higher education than even that. Exposed to many professors, many, many teachers and instructors. Maybe you've been in contact in terms of a thousand and one voices on the subject of truth, it's not just higher education. It also can include the crazy uncle at a family barbecue. Or some religious leader of your past where you esteem them to be so highly as, as it related to the truth. And then you notice that when push came to shove in their life, when they had a chance to demonstrate that their life was really about truth, that they faltered and, and fell and self-destructed as badly as anybody else who claimed no religious affiliation. And instead of giving you hope, for discovering truth in life, this whole journey has just left you tired and confused and cynical and jaded related to the subject. You don't even want to talk about it. You don't want to think about it. And if you could leave the room without making too much of a fuss, you would. But Pilate's question is a good one. The mistake that Pilate made was that by the time he finally got to the man who could answer his question, he had given up hope that there was an answer to the question. And so he didn't bother to wait for Jesus' answer. Pilate's question is an important question. In fact, it's the most important question that we'll attempt to answer in our lives. What is truth? And the reason that that question is important to answer is because if we don't know what truth is, then we'll never know what we're aiming at in this life. We don't have any hope of ever making any sense out of life, and we don't have any means of identifying and thus avoiding lies or deceptions in life, which are the opposite of truth, in order to protect ourselves from becoming a casualty to all of the lies that are foisted upon us as citizens of this world, one after another. As one author has put it, without truth, he said, we drift on a tide of uncertainty into a sea of unknowing. And it's no wonder that so much of our nation and so much of our world keeps themselves drunk or loaded or medicated. But very, very thankfully, Jesus declared that there is something called truth 
in this world. And that he came into the world, verse 37, to bear witness to that truth. How did he bear witness to the truth? Two ways. Through his teaching, the declaration of truth, but also through his living. The old saying is some things aren't taught, but they're caught. There's some things that we learn better through having someone instruct us on it. And then there are other things that we learn better by watching somebody handle that same situation that we know we're going to find ourselves in and to watch how they navigated it successfully and then learn from it. And so Jesus taught on both levels, both by his word and by his example. And he came into the world to teach us the truth about God, about man, about sin, about life, about death, about eternity, about the meaning and the purpose of life, about how to live, how to speak, how to think, how to feel. And most importantly for us, how to be saved. But he didn't just come into the world to speak about eternal life, the truth about eternal life. He also came into the world to speak to us about how to live life now, how to enjoy an abundant life, even this side of heaven, how to live what to do, what not to do, what to speak, what not to speak, what to set our minds upon in life, where to safely focus our emotions in this life and so forth. All of those are priceless truths that we would not otherwise know apart from his revelation that he's brought into human history. Now, we notice, too, in verse 37 that Jesus speaks to us of his qualifications to speak authoritatively on the subject of truth. And he is uniquely qualified in human history to speak on the subject of truth. You notice that he declared to Pilate for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. He was born into this world, speaking of his humanity, but he also came into the world, which speaks of his deity. He's declaring that he existed before his birth at Bethlehem. John wrote in his in the same gospel, in the very first couple of verses of the gospel, he said, in the beginning was the word speaking of Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God before he was ever born into the world. Verse 14 of that first chapter and the word that is Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus was telling Pilate and is telling us that, yes, he was born into the world, but it wasn't just a birth. It was a coming. I wasn't just born. I came from heaven's glory to reveal this truth. And who better to bear witness to the truth of God and to the truth of heaven than Jesus, who alone in human history possesses these credentials. Now, one of the things that I love about Jesus, and there's a lot that I love about Jesus, is that he gives every single person in this room and every single person in this world an opportunity to put him to a risk-free test 
as it relates to his promise to have the truth and to speak the truth and to have lived the truth for us at his invitation. You can test him. He's not just a talker who says, I do this, and he gets his speaker fee, and he goes out the side door. He said, you can test the truth that I've spoken to you, and I won't consider it an offense. I won't, I won't consider that to be uh, some mock of distrust related to me at all. He absolutely invites us to put his truth to the test. I have many favorite verses in the Bible. Some of them are super-duper favorites. One of them is in Luke chapter 7, verse 35. When Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and he said to them, But wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom, true wisdom, is justified by her children. And Jesus declared there that any one of us can put him to the test concerning his claim to bear witness to the truth. Wisdom, Jesus said, is justified on the basis of the kind of person that that wisdom produces. Wisdom is not wisdom because it declares itself to be wisdom. Or because someone declares it to be wisdom. Or because the whole world believes it to be wisdom. True wisdom earns the right to be called wisdom on the basis of the quality of the human being it produces. Wisdom must earn the right to be called wisdom. You look all over the world, all through the last 2,000 years... Across all the broad diversity of mankind in every continent of the world. And you look at the beautiful life that simple obedience to Jesus' truth produces. And why does it always, without exception, produce a beautiful life? Because as we obey His word, we're living life as God intended life to be lived. Not only are we now in right relationship with God, but we are now in right relationship with our fellow man. And we are now in right relationship with the entirety of his creation. So now we don't become casualties mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually In that truth, because we're completely in line with what God is about in his will. Now, in the same vein, in John chapter 7, verse 17, another favorite of mine, Jesus declared, he said, my doctrine is not mine. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, speaking of the Father. He said, if anyone wills to do his will, John 7, 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And here Jesus supplies each of us with an absolutely foolproof way to know the truth about him, about his doctrine in this 
world is filled with all of these confusing and conflicting voices related to the truth, he declares that if anyone has a sincere desire to know whether the truth that he spoke was divine or not, really true or not, all you need to do in order to clear up all doubt is to begin to obey his teaching and you will discover his teaching to be absolutely true. How so? How will you discover it? By the supernaturalness of the life, the supernatural quality of life that simple obedience to his word produces. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take Granny's word for it. You don't have to take Ellie May's word for it. Or Jethro's or Jed's clan. Clampett's word for it. You don't have to take your mother's word for it or your father or your daughter or your son or your aunt or your uncle or your neighbors or anybody else's word for it. You can take and begin to obey God's word and the quality of life that comes out of that is so supernatural of a quality that your own personal life will become your personal testimony to the veracity or the truthfulness of God's word. You become proof. You become your own proof of the truth of his word. That's very, very powerful. I think and I love the fact that Jesus said anyone in John seven seventeen. If anyone wills to do his will, in other words, this works for anyone. Jesus says this. He doesn't hedge it. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't have you sign a contract. He doesn't ask you what your background is, what you've gone through in life, the kind of difficulty, what addictions we've gotten ourselves into, how badly we've messed up our life. He doesn't ask any of those things. He says anyone. This works for anyone. There's no risk of failure, no risk of disappointment, no matter how badly we've messed up our lives, no matter how jaded or cynical we've become about life and about truth. Because of whatever we've experienced in life, not just sex, drugs, rock and roll, watching people fight for power, but also what can happen in higher education. This is his guarantee. You'll know the truth. And I notice that if that he says in that same verse. And essentially he's saying the ball is in our court. He's ready to prove his. The beauty and the truth of his word in your life personally today. But he's a gentleman. He won't force himself on you. You have to invite him to do that. He's willing He's ready to go if you're willing to let him do it. And where do you start this life of obedience? I don't know any better way than by obeying his call to be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think that it is very, very sad That Pilate asked Jesus this question, what is truth? The most important question we will ask in life. And then he failed to allow Jesus to answer the question. And Jesus was willing to answer the question. 
Jesus is not afraid of any question, any honest question that any person would want to pose to him. But if we ask the question, we ought to be decent enough to then stay and wait for the answer to that question. I think that it's really too bad Pilate didn't ask more questions of Jesus. But Pilate isn't alone. I think it's very, very sad today that more people who are searching for the truth aren't asking more questions of Jesus. Jesus makes an extraordinary claim in verse 37 concerning the truth. And you would have thought that Pilate would have ordered a, great, a chair to be pulled up next to Jesus, look Jesus right in the eye and say, what in the world do you mean by that? But he doesn't do it. And that scene, I think, is repeated over and over again in universities and schools and coffee shops and workplaces every day. These extraordinary claims of Jesus are just brushed off or they're left unexplored by some what is truth. And surely there's no opportunity to find truth there. And here sits the one who came from heaven to reveal the truth to us. And half the time he sits silent for lack of questions. Notice, and I close with this, Jesus declared very significantly, whoever is of the truth, hears my voice. Whoever is of the truth, hears my voice. That is such a wow statement. That's like a bomb going off in human history. Just that one statement made by Jesus. Who everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In other words, all who love truth will recognize it in Jesus's life and teaching. And then they will recognize him for who he is and then crown him the king of their life. This tells us. That not everyone who claims to be interested in discovering the truth about life and about death and heaven and hell and salvation and the meaning of life and so forth actually is. They may say that their search is an honest search. They may even believe that it's an honest search, but it is not an honest search. And here's the litmus test for an honest search, according to Jesus. Every person who investigates the life and teaching of Jesus and rejects him, Jesus said, is not on an honest search for the truth. Because he said, everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. In other words, Here's a person who says with their mouth that they're open to the truth wherever it's found, wherever it leads them. And they may even believe that about themselves. But when the truth leads to Christ, that is unacceptable to them. And so they are not engaged in an honest search for the truth. They are engaged in a search 
for truth that doesn't involve Christ. That's not an honest search for the truth. They're engaged in a search for the truth that does not involve God, does not involve the God of the Bible. Or they only want a truth that allows for their sin or their selfishness or their pride or their sense of self-importance or their self-will. In other words, they only, will only accept a truth that legitimizes their worship of self. And anything that does not do that, they reject that as having any possibility of leading to the truth. And that lie is as old as the Garden of Eden. I look at the religious leaders in Jesus' day here who were involved in the morning of his crucifixion. They were not engaged in an honest search for the truth because they would not accept any truth that involved the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah. And thus, they were not of the truth. And those were religious men. I look at Pilate, the same scene. Pilate refused to give Jesus' statement in verses 36 and 37 any serious consideration at all. Why? Because he was not of the truth. He would not accept a truth which meant persecution or rejection or the loss of position or power or the loss of popularity. He was unwilling to accept any truth at the cost of those things. So he was not honest in his search for truth. Jesus declared that if truth is what a person is honestly after, then they will hear his voice. That's the perspective of God in heaven. That's the perspective of the Creator. That's the perspective of the God who knows every single one of us in the world and everyone that's ever lived and ever will live inside and out. The Bible says we are all, everything is open and naked before Him with whom we have to do. And when God looks into the heart of hearts and He looks into the mind of minds of every single person that rejects His Son, He declares there was no honest search for truth in that person's life as powerful. In the course of Pilate's trial of Jesus, it came to dawn on him by degrees that it wasn't Jesus that was on trial. He was on trial before Jesus. The same thing's true of all of us. Jesus is never, ever on trial based upon what we do with him. We are always on trial based upon what we do with him and his perfection. What we do with him, with that perfect life, is never a reflection on him, always a reflection on us. And no one whose search for the truth does not lead them to Jesus, is involved in an honest search. Because heaven above declares that that is where an honest search will always lead to faith in Christ. And when it leads elsewhere, 
It is because some something dishonest, some prejudice, some sin, some selfishness, some dark something is now influencing the search. This is so important for us to understand. Given our capacity for self-deception in the one area that we cannot afford to be self-deceived in, and that is what is truth in life. God loves us, the Bible teaches, and he does. The Bible says that God pities us. He made us. He's created us. He knows all about the world that you're in. He knows all about your home. He knows all about your neighborhood. He knows all about your workplace and your school. He knows about all the challenges that you face in coming to discover what is truth in life. He's compassionate toward us. He knows how many voices are speaking in the name of truth. He knows the darkness of our own hearts, the strength of our own self-will, our own capacity to convince ourselves that we've given even God a fair trial when if the truth be made known, He hasn't been given a fair trial or a fair opportunity at all. He knows all that works against our faith in Christ, both without and within. So there he sits on the morning of his crucifixion. And he's covered in his own blood already by the beatings of religious men. And he's covered by their spit. And another beating is coming. And another scourging is coming before he ever ends up on the cross. And as he sits in that praetorium, he makes this statement. An unbelievably bold, strong statement, a statement that is incredible in its clarity because it needed to be made in order to bust through even decades of cynicism and jadedness and hopelessness that you can ever come to know the truth or the belief that you can sit in a room like this or hear this somewhere, only God knows where, and to think that I have given truth a fair shake in my life and I've rejected Christ and to think that and, and to fall into that self-deception. And he on that morning to Pilate declares this thing to break through all of that. So we can possess a priceless clarity on the subject that our eternities depend upon, and that is, what is truth? God declares, if we could see as He sees into every human life and heart and mind, that any time there is an honest search for truth, it will always lead to faith in Christ. And when it doesn't, we're not dealing with an honest search for truth. We're dealing with a tainted situation. That's important to know. That's important if anybody sits here today and has not yet trusted in Christ. 
That's an important truth to weigh on your heart and on your mind and to give it great consideration. From the mouth of this Savior who paid such a price to tell you the truth. You can't get truth anywhere else in this world except from the God of this Bible and His Son and His Holy Spirit. I was tempted to pass over this passage and continue on after kind of dealing with it in a light way last week and bringing out a different kind of point. But I think about how many people are just getting killed by all these theories out there. Victims of our own so-called wisdom who have thrown our lives away or decades of it. Worse yet, it's one thing for me to be a a victim of my own lack of wisdom. It's one thing to be self-deceived. There's another thing to be deceived by other people. And how many of us, maybe even like Pilate, and, and Pilate didn't begin how we ended in life. Where somebody tells us this is the truth. And so we invest six months in that and find out it's a fraud. And it's done damage to our mind and our innocence and our purity. Somebody else says, no, the truth is found over here. And we invest five years in that. And then we find out that's a dead end street. And it screwed up our mind maybe for the rest of our lives apart from a miracle of God. We haven't given up on truth yet. Somebody says, this is where it's found. And we invest three years here and another eight years here and here and here. And pretty soon all the decades are gone. And then we end up cynical and jaded. Thinking, no, the next, the, I can't go anywhere, buy into anybody's next thing. Because I don't have the margins to invest in another disappointment and another failure. Because I don't know if my heart can take it. I don't know if my mind can take it. I don't know if my body can take it. And Jesus comes along and speaks to you today. And says, you're home. And coming to him. You're safe in coming to Him. The truth stands right in front of you on the pages of Scripture and the person of Jesus. And how do you begin this new life of experiencing His truth? Your life now becoming a a proof and evidence, a testimony to His truth. It begins with trusting Him for the forgiveness of your sins group of religious leaders came to Jesus, group of men. They said to him, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? How do we work our way into heaven? And they're expecting something the equivalent of, well, you need to climb uh, the Himalaya mountains. Or at least Mount Diablo over here or the Rockies. And you need to crawl on your hands and knees, you know, across Mexico Or you need to pray a million prayers of this kind. Or you need to do. And that's the kind of answer that they were expecting. 
And Jesus spoke to him and he said, this is the work of God. That you believe in him, that is Jesus, whom he, that is the father, has sent. It's that simple for entering into this life. By looking to God this morning and saying, yes, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I've been less than perfect in my life. And I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. And he was buried and rose again on the third day. And I believe that that is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And so I turn from my selfishness, I turn from my sin and my self-will, and I put my faith in your Savior. I put my faith in Jesus. I give you my life to use however you see fit for the rest of this life and all of the life to come. And when a person does that, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and begin the life that Jesus not only spoke about, but that he died on the cross to provide you with. It's all there for the asking. It's all there for the receiving. Because he has paid the price to make it free to you. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they would love to answer your questions, pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning, and then give you a free Bible and some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. Take advantage of the opportunity. The search for truth ends today. And it ends at Jesus' feet. Everything changes with a prayer. Everything changes. It's all there for the asking. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and we'll pray.